When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. Good man, Jordan Conroy. He'll reinvent the hacker at this rate when he scores his next try in the Rugby Sevens. We can expect a big dance celebration, Jordan. Don't let us down. Coming up today, what you can learn from Michael O'Leary's plan to give farmland to his children. Also, what to expect from the economy over the next 12 months. And why you don't want Kinder Eggs for breakfast. You especially don't want your children to dine out on them. When you call 0818 300 103 is the Midlands 103 comment line. You can text, you can WhatsApp 083 30 10 103 powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. You get me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, lots of ways to have the conversation today. What have we got in the papers? Actually, nice mix of stories. Some very, very interesting ones if you're uh, a Bank of Ireland customer. I'll get to that in a second. Front page of the Irish Times. Zelensky calls for Russian war crimes trials. The uh, Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, he'll be appearing before the houses of the Oireachtas later today. And his allegation is that Russia has committed the worst war crime since the Second World War. And he wants the United Nations and the court in The Hague to prosecute Vladimir Putin's regime. Moving then to the Irish Independent. And it says, No recession, but fears over war to hit spending. So while the economy at a macro level is going to grow, your own confidence and your own willingness to spend whatever is in the bank, however much or however little is there, that confidence is evaporating. And part of the reason is because of the war in Ukraine and the other part of the reason linked to that, the rising cost of inflation. And many people are putting aside money, spare change for the essentials rather than maybe for the new TV or the shiny new car or whatever would have been the spending plans only a few months ago. Consumer confidence has taken a big, big tumble, says the Irish Independent. And then on the front of the Irish Daily starts the Keenans again. Do we really want to go into this? Four and a half million euro loot cases. And it shows a property, very, very nice, swanky, uh, four and a half million euro house that was uh, inspected by the Criminal Assets Bureau yesterday. Linked to the Keenans. All right. Inside the front pages then, more coverage of... Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, and the session before the Houses of the Oireachtas will begin at 10 o'clock this morning. It's the first time ever that the leader of a country at war has addressed our parliament. And for the record, the Russian ambassador, Mr. Filatov, who was invited to attend, has declined the invitation. Surprise, surprise and shock horror. The Irish Examiner tells us that of the 20,700 properties offered by the public to the Red Cross to house Ukrainian refugees, less than half of them will be suitable. It says the Cabinet was briefed yesterday about 
Who is arriving? Two-thirds are women. The remainder are mostly children. And the majority so far are housed in emergency hotel accommodation, but the number of rooms is running out. They believe 18,600 Ukrainians have arrived to the country so far. But by Easter weekend, what's Easter weekend? That's only uh, the weekend after next. The number will have nearly doubled to 32,000. Now, on other stories, a little bit of good news on COVID-19. Even if you're feeling under the weather, as I know a number of people have picked up the disease in the last couple of weeks, the peak seems to have passed with this Omicron BA2 variant wave, whatever you want to call it. So the positivity rate among people who are getting tested for PCR is down to 30% from 43% a week ago. So it suggests the curve is on the way down. Oh, the curve. Remember, we had to flatten the curve two years ago. Flatten the curve. That's all we were told. Kinder eggs. I have to say I love Kinder chocolate. It's one of the nicest flavours you can put in your mouth. But beware if you're buying... Kinder Surprise Chocolate Eggs, or if you already have some stowed away for the Easter Bunny, there have been 10 cases of salmonella poisoning linked to Kinder Eggs so far in Ireland, and it has led to the Food Safety Authority asking that the following be recalled. Kinder Mini Eggs, dated between April 20th and August 21st, so best before dates between those dates, Kinder Egg Hunt Kit, same dates, August 21st, back as far as April 20th. Kinder Surprise Eggs. Kinder, how the hell do you pronounce this? Chocobons? And then Kinder Surprise with best before dates, July 11th to October 7th. Kinder Surprise, best before dates, again, uh, July 11th. October 7th. The weights are the only things different there, whether they're in a three-pack or a single-pack. But anyway, suffice to say, if you have somebody in the house who loves the Kinder chocolate, just check the dates before you pick it off the shelf. Dr. Tony Houlihan is pictured in many papers today because he's soon to be the ex-chief medical officer. He is moving into a professorship in Trinity College, Dublin. And it turns out He's going to remain working for the Department of Health on his full CMO's salary and he's going to be on secondment to Trinity. And this happens quite a bit in the public service where people move around and different talents and experiences and perspectives are shared. It's not unusual in that sense. But what has outraged quite a lot of contributors in the Dáil yesterday is that the Department of Health must find his salary of 187 grand from its own budget, even though he'll be working in Trinity. Also, his pension, therefore, will accumulate from the department. But they must also find a replacement for him on the same rate of 187,000 euros, so less money in the Department of Health while Trinity College gets the benefit. Nightclubs, if you're a night owl and you like drinking till all hours of the morning, well, the laws are being reformed and a a 6am closing time could be in place for Christmas. These reforms have been launched by the Justice Minister Helen McEntee and she says it won't be a matter of months, but it can be done this year. 
and there mightn't be a huge number of nightclubs that wish to remain open until 6am but if they do then by Christmas they will have that opportunity and you will find in the likes of the Lisbons and the Berlins and the Londons of the world that nightclubs can stay open late but usually it's only a select few because the market just isn't there. Now how that translates into large provincial towns in rural Ireland remains to be seen. Could you imagine in Portlaoise, in Athlone, in Mullingar, in Tullamore, those sorts of sized towns having nightlife until six in the morning. I dare say local residents would have a thing or two to say about that. Fair enough, in Dublin, in the city centre, not a huge number of people live in Dublin city centre. The Bank of Ireland is in trouble. You may have received a letter over the last few weeks telling you they made a mistake with your personal data, but it was quite a serious mistake for many people because they misreported to the central credit register whether you were good for borrowing or not. And the central credit register is accessed by other financial institutions and credit card companies and what have you to determine whether you're somebody they can do business with. And Bank of Ireland, when it was originally contacted by the Data Protection Commission, said, oh, this only affects one person. Just one, just one. Turns out it was 47,000 customers for whom they made this mistake. And according to a data expert who is quoted in the Irish Examiner this morning, you might have a legal case, regardless of whether you suffered financial loss or not. He's the Director of Data Compliance Europe, by the way, Simon McGar, if you wish to look him up. And he says that under GDPR, you can recover non-financial loss. In other words, if you find it distressing that they made this horrible mistake about you on your credit rating, then you can seek compensation. 47,000 claims. Good luck on that one, Bank of Ireland. A final one for you. The top 20 pubs in Ireland have been revealed by Lonely Planet. And let's have a look at who in the Midlands has been given some credit. So, Morrissey's Pub in Abbey Leaks. Well done to you. JJ Hawks, the singing pub in Banagher. Great videos always produced by Hawks every year. Descriptions. So it says, with Morrissey's, you are encouraged to stop by for an Instagram snap that the watering hole in Abbey Leaks transports you back to the 1900s. And actually, the pub itself dates from 1775 when it opened as a grocery store. It's a treasure, says Lonely Planet. A hodgepodge of oddities line the shelves and the pew seats and the potbelly stove. You get the idea. Then for Hawks, they describe it as quirky, idiosyncratic, individualistic, and that this 250-year-old bar, long celebrated for its charm and the warm welcome of its owner, also serves pizza and cocktails. And by all accounts, the espresso martinis are a house special. Where's Sean's? Sean's bar not in here. No? Well, you can't beat the charm of Sean's either. So, Lonely Planet, 
we've two pubs from the Midlands making the top 20 in Ireland. Feel free to disagree. Here's a question for your friendly local taxi driver. You know when Christmas comes and we're all out in the nightclub until 6 in the morning, are they going to stay up until 6am to bring you home? Great to have festivals to talk about and to look forward to. I mentioned yesterday the Bachelor Festival coming back to Mullingar and the fantastic lineup of judges, Anne Doyle, Louis Walsh, to name some of the more high-profile ones, Darren Garrahy in there as well, Nathan Carter. But also for the first time in three years, Tullamore Tradfest is back. So live concerts, session trails, special musical guests and a huge musical celebration in memory of Ashling Murphy. You can look forward to all of that this weekend and indeed full details at TullamoreTradFest.com. There's a special broadcast on Friday evening between 7 and 8 from the Bridge House Hotel. And you will also hear more on non-stop classics with Mark Hughes from the Bridge Centre between 2 and 5 this weekend. So if you're a fan of Tradfest and traditional music in general, lots on the agenda over the next couple of days. As I said, thanks to the Bridge Shopping Centre with over 30 shops and 400 car parking spaces in the heart of Tullamore. Over the next 25 minutes, we're talking a lot about money and two different extremes. So, in 10 minutes, how you can protect your earnings when you pass on to the next generation by investing in farmland as Michael O'Leary, the Midlands' richest man, is doing. But first, if you're at the other end of the spectrum, when you've practically no income coming in, apart from carer's allowance, when your means are very, very limited, and when inflation knocks at your door, just what is the true cost of care arising from a disability? Well, let's talk this through with Catherine Cox. She's Head of Communications with Family Carers Ireland, which is based in Tullamore. Catherine, good morning. Morning, Will. Now, we're talking not just about an idle estimate here. This is some pretty thorough research. Take us through it. Yeah, so um, this research has been undertaken by the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice um, on behalf of Family Carers Ireland ourselves. So... Basically what they did, and they've been using this method for over 25 years, it's called the MESL, the Minimum Essential Standard of Living Costs. So basically they took two households. One household had a two-parent family with one son who was 14 and has a profound intellectual disability. And then they took a second family with the same composition, so two-parent family with one son, same age, but that son does not have any caring needs or disability. And they compared both households in terms of their costs. And they used 14 different um, types of costs, so such as food, health, transport, and so on. And they compared the two family families. And what they found was that the household with the caring needs, it cost €244 Euro more per week to run that household. Um, so very How does that break cost. down? It is a significant cost, absolutely. Mm. What does the 240 odd euro amount to when, when you look at the component parts? 
Mm, so I think the ones that were the high, higher costs in relation to the caring were things like transport, which is not a surprise. We know, you know, for families where there is a disability, transport can be a huge issue, both in terms of maybe adapting a vehicle, but also the fact that maybe they cannot use public transport, may need to use adapted taxis and so on. So transport was a high, one of the higher costs. Caring costs in particular was very high. And when I say caring costs, this related specifically to families who are caring having to pay privately for essential therapies and supports like uh, physiotherapy, speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, and also having to pay privately for respite. So in actual fact, this report also shines a light on the fact that the state is failing families in terms of publicly provided supports and services. They shouldn't have to pay for those privately, but they are. Now it also, and just to clarify um, on that, yeah. is it that the delay in securing the services through the state would just be inordinate or is it that the services aren't there full stop? It's a, it's a mix of both, Will. So in terms of the physiotherapy and speech and language therapy, but also paying for things like assessment um, to um, get a diagnosis, for example, for a child maybe who might be on the autism spectrum. So they're, they're also paying for those. So in some situations, those services are simply not there. And in other cases, the family may be on a waiting list for 12 months, two mm. years, and sometimes more. And denying those children both diagnosis but also those therapies means you are denying them the right to develop to their full potential. So it's critical they get them when they need them. And that's why families are struggling but paying privately for these and probably going into debt as a result of that. The report also shone a light on that as well. The fact that many caring families will go into debt because they cannot put money aside, they cannot save on low income, um, they cannot save for the future and obviously then the, the mental stress mm. that that causes those families as well. But there's also a spiral. If you get into debt you mm-hmm. to serve as interest on that, your bills just keep getting bigger. Indeed, indeed. And it means those families as well, because this report looks at, um, you know, when they talk about the minimum essential standard of living, they look at can a family, you know, do other things like take a break, um, you know, socialise, have leisure activities, which other families can do. And unfortunately, it shows that most often caring families, particularly those on low incomes, cannot do those things and they do not have that quality uh, standard of life that other families do. Now, in terms of solutions, is it simply the size of the payments that are handed out that need to be adjusted or are there restrictions too on people who might have some time available to work but would lose their payments if they did? Yeah, so there's a number of solutions and certainly the financial solutions need to be brought into the equation. Um, But if you look at, for example, we had a transport scheme, a mobility allowance, which was paid to carers up to 2012. That system stopped in 2012 and we were promised a new transport scheme. Ten years on, we still don't have that. So if funding was put into transport and transport supports were in place, that would help. Just for background, how much was the allowance worth? Um, so it was a payment that was p- uh, paid over a month. Um, and I think now off the top of my head, it was about €140. Euros. So it was a significant payment towards the cost of transport for people. Um, and it is still, it, what they did is they closed it to new applicants. So applicants before 2012 
still have that payment, mm. but anybody after don't, which is discrimination as well. Um, in terms of then what else could be done, for example, the, the fuel allowance, is the carer's allowance payment is not an eligible allow- payment for the fuel allowance, which is ridiculous, which is crazy, given the, the cost of heating and, you know, for caring families. So if that was to be amended, at least the families would get some financial support towards their fuel. But I think the bigger picture is, it's still in this country, everything, care in the home and the supports that carers get are discretionary. So they're not on a legislative footing. And until we get that, it will still be discrepancies right across the country. We'll still have the postcode lottery that we see. So we need a statutory entitlement to home care that gives carers and the person they're caring for a right to supports and services in their home when they need it. And that should include therapies. We need to... Well, and and that will help, but, but the postcode lottery can still continue. For instance, with the speech and language therapy, again, there's a theoretical... Uh, right of access to it but we know in Leash Offaly for instance there's a chronic shortage and the delays are longer than in Longford Westmeath and indeed many other parts of the country so that's really a a resource issue over time a recruitment issue that unfortunately Mm -hmm. will take perhaps years to resolve It is, and we had suggested for example that they go to the National Treatment Fund and at least look at bringing down the waiting list. For for some therapies, there's up to 8,000 people on a waiting list. I mean, they need to address that waiting list, at least bring that down. And then, as you said, it is part, it, there is a recruitment issue. There are shortages of staff. We see it as well in home care. Um, as a home care provider, family care, it is so difficult to, to recruit and retain home care workers as well. But I think... You know, we need to, first of all, recognise, look at family carers, look at the work they're doing, the fact they're saving, this say, €20 billion Euro every year, and they need to put in place supports to allow them to continue to do that safely. Um, and unless they do that, and, you know, yesterday we heard the announcement, and, you know, welcome the announcement that people in the arts will get a, a payment, I think it's €325 Euro per week, um, given that they've had such a difficult pandemic. Again, I ask the question, what about family carers? You know, they stepped up, they continued caring, they didn't get the COVID bonus payment, even though many are frontline, they didn't get a vaccination priority, they continued to care, they continued to do it with rising costs in fuel um, and heating, you know, household goods as well. This report shows that caring families are really st- struggling financially, but also mentally. This report shines a light on the fact the pressure that caring can put on relationships and marriages in a family as well, and the impact it can have on the the family carer's mental health and well-being. We want carers to continue caring. We want older people and people with disabilities to remain living and participating in our community, in our society. But we cannot have that unless we support family carers to do that. And that's the message to government. And it is about financial support, but it's also about recognising, empowering and supporting carers to cope with their caring role. Don't allow them to get to the stage, which many are doing, where they're burnt out and they cannot do it anymore and they're struggling financially and emotionally. Just on a final point, and again, it's another report on top of scorecards that you've issued every year for the National Mm -hmm. Care Strategy and so on. And 
you've been banging the drum for carers for quite a long number of years in your own case, Catherine, and we've mm-hmm. been in more recent times, whatever about 2012, for instance, when the mobility allowance was axed, they were straightened financial circumstances, not to excuse mm-hmm. it. But certainly from 2015 onwards, budgets have been getting bigger, promises have been getting bigger. Have you seen any progress? We have, actually. And, you know, to to acknowledge, um, for example, the carers allowance income disregard stayed stagnant for 13 years. And for the first time last year, that increased. Um, the savings disregard increase. Now, I can imagine there's carers across the country listening to me jumping up and down, screaming at the radio. Income disregard and the carers allowance is still means tested. And I know for many family carers would say the means test should be gone. And of course, ideally, family carers should be paid for the work that they do, you know, regardless of whether their partner earns money, that the income disregard, and I know carers want that abolished completely but it has moved in the right direction it has brought in more carers into the net for carers allowance but we do need to see carers allowance the payment itself increase and given that the pup payment was set at 350 euro per per week because they said people couldn't really live on anything below that how do they think family carers can live on 224 euro per week given they have extra costs of caring as we've seen final final question Catherine how many votes Mm -hmm. do family carers represent? There are 500,000 family carers in this country. There are another probably 500,000 within their family. So this is well over 1 million people you know, who should and we would encourage to, to vote, you know, to, to push their, their local politicians to talk to them, to engage with them, to, to lobby them for better supports and services for family carers. We will certainly be doing that again coming up to budget. Last year was probably the first budget where we saw improvements for the first time in a number of years. We will absolutely continue to strive and work to see those increase. But look, it is very difficult times for everybody in in society, you know, with the pandemic, with everything that has gone on. But I do believe family carers have really suffered emotionally and financially over the last three years in particular. And we absolutely have to see some supports put in place to relieve some of those pressures. Catherine, appreciate your time. Thank you very much for taking Thanks the so call. Much, Catherine Cox from the Family Carers Ireland, which is based in Tullamore. Now next, to the other end of the wealth spectrum, Michael O'Leary won't be leaving his children a bundle of money, but he is going to give them farmland. Now there may be more than that, uh, more to that rather, than simply a love of the land and the animals. Got a bit of a problem. I was trying to organise the night out for you and for me when nightclubs can open until 6am come Christmas and we need a way home and, well, the cabby cabby Kieran White from Kiki Cabs in Mulligar, he's never in bad form. He's always very accommodating. So I called him and I said, Kieran, will you bring me home at six in the morning? You have your shite if you think I'm doing that. <laughs> ah, Kieran, Disgraceful. But he's dead right. Who in their right mind is going to be waiting in a taxi rank until six in the morning for somebody who's utterly polluted, having been drinking for probably 12, 14 hours straight, to fall into the car and not even remember where their home is? Anyway, first world problems. Speaking of which, Michael O'Leary isn't going to leave a big bundle of money to his children. Instead, he's going to give them a nice house 
and up to 250 acres of land to farm. And while initially we thought, well, OK, he's just very fond of the land and of nature and of passing on those sorts of values, maybe there's some method to the madness financially as well. James Farrell joins us from IFAC Accountants in Mullingar. Morning, James. I will. How are you? Very well, thank you. When it comes to inheritance tax, what are the rules around farmland? Yeah, there's specific and attractive relief there around farmland. Um that reduces the overall inheritance tax liability for the beneficiary. Um, standard rules on inheritance tax states that any child can receive 335,000 tax-free uh, from their parents in their lifetime. Anything above that is subject to tax at 33%. If you take that 250-acre farm, let's say 2.5 million, take off 335,000 tax-free uh, and tax the rest at 33%, it'll leave an underlying inheritance tax bill for each of the children is 714,000. Ouch. But there's a, yeah, massive, massive. And if that's 2.5 million in agricultural assets or non-ag assets, that's the tax position. But specifically around agricultural assets, there's a relief called agricultural relief, which if the beneficiary qualifies for, it serves to reduce the taxable value of the inheritance to 10% of market value. In other words, 2.5 million and the value of the asset is reduced to a tax value of 250,000. 250,000 is below then the 335,000 ah, gotcha. and no tax then at all. Now there's conditions. I was about to say yes, which, conditions. You did mention the T's and C's. What are they? Like every case needs to be looked at in detail, but on a high level the conditions are number 1, the beneficiary must pass what's called an asset test that states that 80% of their assets must be agricultural at the time of receipt of the gift. And secondly, they must pass what's called an active farmer test, which it can pass in any way, any one of three ways. Farming it full-time themselves for at least 20 hours a week, farming it with a green cert, or doing a six-year long-term lease to an active farmer. Any one of those three, plus the 80-20 asset test and the pass the test, and they save 714,000 tax. So this is why a lot of high net worth individuals are investing into agricultural land, which is probably driving up the value of land mm. for farmers, which is probably counterproductive. Like the whole idea of this relief is to make sure that land stays in farmers' hands, that the land continues to be worked. Um, but the relief probably, and it's going to happen over the next few years, I would say it's going to become more and more tailored to the farmer uh, as opposed to just the general uh, you know, businessman who can invest into land as a means to transfer the assets on to their next generation tax efficiently. Mm. I was just thinking as well, though, for Michael O'Leary, he's worth about a billion quid, give or take. He'd have to buy a lot of farmland. He would, but sure, I, I believe the story is that that's all he's given them. I don't know what he's going to do with the rest. It might be a trust or something along those lines. But, uh, yeah, it's not a bad start to all the family, like 250 acres. Not indeed. Uh, we might send him a begging letter, though. Who knows? Maybe uh, he owes you an odd hundred million and me an odd hundred million. And if it's going, I'm sure we'll gratefully accept it. James, thank you very much. No problem, Will. Thank you. James Farrell is a CPA partner with IFAC Accounting. Now, it's coming up on four minutes to ten. And in the next hour, what to expect from the Irish economy over the next 12 months. Also, the... Health boards were abolished 20 years ago. Now we're bringing back regional health areas. So is it an admission that the HSE was just a bloody disaster and shouldn't have been created in the first place?
how exactly is this going to work once they make the change? What sort of local input will there be if the people who are elected, let's say, in the Portleash area know Portleash Hospital best, will they have a voice? And so on. Plus, Brian Clunan is here to discuss DIY, to delve into your questions in around half an hour. Good morning. Now, still on the agenda today, what to expect from the Irish economy over the next 12 months and how will it filter into your pocket? Because the central bank still predicts economic growth, but it will be tempered by inflation, the conflict in Ukraine and how all of that filters into consumer confidence. Also, why you don't want to be eating Easter eggs from Kinder unless they're between certain date ranges. There's a risk of salmonella poisoning, and I'll be telling you more a little later with the Food Safety Authority. Yesterday, we reported how regional health areas will replace the overarching health service executive under plans that were presented to cabinet ministers. And while these plans have been in fermentation for quite a number of years, they were delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic. And the Midlands counties will be rolled in with Kildare and with parts of Wicklow and parts of Dublin. And the resounding question from a lot of listeners is, what bloody difference does it make if you have administrative areas here or administrative areas there? Is it a case of simply changing the signs, changing the letterhead? How does it filter into the hospitals? What difference does it make at patient level? So we thought we'd explore this with a man who ran the Midlands Health Board for 24 years. Dennis Doherty was the CEO there from 1980 until the Health Board was abolished in 2004. Dennis, you're very welcome to the programme and good morning. Good morning, Will. Thanks for having me. Can you explain why listeners and patients should care about how the health system is divided administratively? Well, uh, the important bit as far as the patient is concerned is that if they have a condition, uh, a health problem, that there is one agency that will deal with that from start to finish. And that the responsibility shouldn't be divided by the type of health care a hospital does or the type of health care that's done in the community. It's about the approach being integrated. And what surprises me is that it has taken until now to do that because when the HSE was set up, it was accepted. And there's a lot of talk you may remember about the patient journey and that the patient journey should be simple, straightforward and efficient. But in practice, what happened was groups were set up to manage the hospitals and other groups, there were five hospital groups, other groups, nine of them, were set up to deal with the community services. There were a lot of gaps between them. So the decision uh, to set or to establish areas is long overdue. The surprise is it has taken until now. And by the way, the groups are merely operational divisions of the HSE. They're not provider entities in in their own independent right. 
they're, they're divisions of the HSE answerable to the HSE. It's overdue. It has the potential to improve the patient experience. And I emphasize that because the entity, the division, the organization is far less important than how the health system interacts with individual patients. But if it looks like a health board and it, you know, what's that expression about the duck? If it waddles like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. Is this, uh, in effect, a tacit admission that what was done 20 years ago hasn't worked and we're bringing back the health boards in a different form? Well, um, not really. It it looks like a health board um, and it's portrayed a bit like a health board, uh, but it doesn't have the accountability that health boards had. For example, our health board, like the others, met monthly. We had to account uh, to the members, or 30 of them. Um, about half of them were county councillors from the counties that made up the region. And then there was healthcare professions, um, as well as, as independent people. So um, they, they were accountable in that sense. These new divisions, will be accountable only to the HSE. And the HSE, as you know, is a, accountable to a board that doesn't meet in public, that, that is very um, careful about what information it gives. So, I know, uh, what it does is accept that the geography of the country uh, is suitable to a relatively small number of regional uh, entities and the the six um, new areas. It's interesting they're called areas, but they don't bear any resemblance to the natural geography divide of the country. So um, it, it's it's really just a hope that these will administratively integrate well, function well for the benefit of the patient at local level. Now that's a big ask. Putting uh, you know, a, a group in place uh, is the easy bit. The really difficult bit is putting arrangements in place that look after patients from the time they have a need for a service until such time uh, as they're able uh, to function totally independently again. But you mentioned accountability. If, mm. the, if each area is autonomous to some extent... And you can measure in terms of waiting lists, in terms of patient outcomes and whatever metrics that one area is performing better than another. Yeah. Once that's exposed, how would improvement be delivered then in the underperforming area? Well, that would be the the responsibility of the HSE, uh, which is the accountable body. And they have a responsibility to ensure uh, that there is uniformly uh, equal uh, funding for the different uh, regional areas that have now been identified. That was a problem in the past, that some areas were much better funded than others. And, uh, for example, in relation to hospitals, some areas were more attractive to it, you know, were more attractive to prospective consultants, um, and they fared better. So there are a lot, there's funding, there's a, there's the culture of the organisation, 
Uh, there's the accountability, the openness, and also a willingness on the part of the provider to say the service we're expected to provide is very complex. We know we're not getting it 100% right, but we're striving uh, to get there and to engage the understanding uh, of the community and also people like yourself uh, who inform public opinion through your programme. Dennis, grateful for your time. Thank you for taking the call. You're welcome, Dennis Doherty was the Chief Executive of the Midlands Health Board for 24 years until 2004. Eddie Fitzpatrick is a member of Offaly County Council. Now, he sits on something called the Regional Health Forum for Dublin Mid-Leinster. If you're getting lost with all of these different bodies and titles, I don't blame you. Eddie, good morning. Good morning, Will. So what is a Regional Health Forum? Well, I suppose the Regional Health Forum is made up of, uh, as, as Dennis has said there previously, you know, elected uh, members from probably two or three elected members from each county within within that area of Longford, Westmead, Leash, Offaly, uh, Kildare, part of Wicklow, and, of course, South Dublin, to an extent, taken in, I suppose, mainly uh, Tala Hospital. Uh, and in, within that within that area, then of course we have all the different managers of in, in the different hospital areas, and then of course we have uh, the the the, uh, the chief executive maybe or the, the HSE as well, with maybe um, Joe Rowan would sit in on that uh, and that forum with us. So that's that's the makeup of of that. And uh, but in terms it, of know, accountability, we, Eddie, if for instance you're concerned about a waiting list in a hospital or the number of patients on trolleys, whatever the issue might be. Yeah. You get to voice it, but does anything happen? Is there, a, is there an outcome? Is there a follow-through? Well, if, if you take up, Will, just, just, I suppose, just to give you a little insight, um, maybe two weeks prior to our forum meetings, uh, members would have to submit a motion or a question in relation to uh, a particular issue that they might have in their own, in their own area. So, um, you know, and you'd be hoping on, on the day of the forum that the question or the motion uh, brought forward, that the, would, the HSE would have an answer. Now, some cases, they don't have an answer all the time. Um, on most cases, they do. Uh, but, you know, I mean, look at the, 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 um, the person asking the question might not be happy with the answer either. And, you know, the forum, uh, as in the, the, the managers in the different areas, will say, well, look, at, we'll come back to you. Uh, with with a with an answer on this, if we can. Uh, so look at, I suppose, it's very difficult because I I always feel that you know we should be able to sort of ask questions on the day. Now sometimes you can, but I mean generally you have to pose your question or your motion two weeks prior to the meeting. Mm. So it's quite stage managed in that sense. It, exactly, and 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 you know, as 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 Dennis has said there, I mean, uh, you know, you have to hold the HSE then to be uh, accountable. Uh, for the services that they provide within the areas that that we see, uh, that we work in. And under this new structure, which has been presented to Cabinet, these regional health areas, is it clear yet who's going to be on the local board? Uh, Will there be public representation? Will there be just executives or, or, or indeed maybe other stakeholders? Is that worked out yet? Yeah, well, that's not clear yet. I know we will we will have we will be having a regional health forum again uh, in 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 April. Um, so I'm 
I presume that this uh, this issue will come up for discussion at at the next meeting of the forum, and it will. I suppose we'll have to see how this is going to work out. Um, what what number of elected members are on from each uh, from each local area that they represent, and uh, I don't know the makeup of this. I mean, you know, I would see in the past that we would have forum meetings where we would have maybe you know five or six maybe managers uh, sitting at at the head table. Um, but basically, you know, as I said earlier, your questions and your motions have to be posed two weeks prior to that meeting. The concern expressed by a lot of listeners, and I'll sum it up from Brian in Portlaoise here, is that this will create more six-figure salaries at management grade with precious little improvement in services. Now, you're a Fianna Fáil councillor. Your minister is uh, Fianna Fáil Stephen Donnelly. Uh, he's responsible for health. How are you going to ensure through him that doesn't happen? Well, I think, first of all, look at, looking at the areas that, that, that are proposing, there's not an awful lot of change, really, in our area that I can see, except maybe for, I, I, I'm not too sure, I'm looking at it from, from a Wicklow point of view. I think that Wicklow now seems to be gone in with South Dublin, um, um, by looking at the map. Now, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just picking that up wrong. but uh, So that would be the only area that would really be changing in our, in our, um, in our area that they have outlined. So... I mean, I think that it's it's very important that the, the, the people representing each county would have a, a say in, in, in what happens in relation to health care for people around around that area. And, and there's something that I have been, I suppose, muting for a while in, in relation to our primary care centres that we have in, in most... There are, most of the towns around our area have a primary care centre. And I know currently there, there, there's, um, there's a, a process going through looking to develop a primary care in, in Burr. But they're only, they only work from Monday to Friday. And in my opinion, that these primary care centres should be utilised more uh, over the weekends in particular if people need care in these areas. I think that would be very, very an important part of this. Yeah, well, again, the question will be how does that sort of a policy change filter its way into the system from a local representative or indeed from community. But as far as the structures, if there's an existing HSE and there are now going to be regional health areas, it would seem there's going to be some extra layer of management or duplication in there. Am I wrong? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, no, look, you're possibly right in saying that. And, you know, some people would say, well, look, maybe we have too many layers of, of senior management um, uh, at that level across the regions. So, you know, look, at it'll be interesting to see how this is going to work out and what proposals are going to be put forward by the HSE in relation to the makeup of, of the new areas and the makeup of the representation on that. Eddie Fitzpatrick, appreciate your time. Thank you for taking the call. He's a Fianna Fáil member of Offaly County Council. He sits on what's called the Regional Health Forum. Now, a lot of listeners are concerned this is going to be a case of strangling the health system with even more bureaucracy, more administration, more managers. We will update you when more details emerge. And now, it's April in 2022, and there's so much do-it-yourself to do. So doing that do and answering questions for you, is it Despicable Me's Mr. Gru? No! Or is it Brian Cloonan? You are a bit of a cartoon character, are you? <laughs> Flanders, though, I would have said. Yeah, my kids call me Flanders. I need a favour. All right, of course, Will. How much do you need? <laughs> well, 
you see, the nightclubs are going to be opening until six o'clock soon. Oh, fantastic. Oh, and I look forward to that. I need a lift home. <laughs> no problem, I'll be awake. Because I asked my favourite taxi driver, Kieran White from Kiki Cabs, would he pick me up at 6am? Do you know what he said? Well. Have a listen again. Have your shite if you think I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah, have your you-know-what. <laughs> no, anyway. I'll give you a lift, no problem. But in the meantime, by the way, I have a present for you. Oh, no. I Just a little present. I, I don't know if you know, I have a huge fondness for chocolate. But it doesn't agree with me, so I have a policy now. I don't eat chocolate. But I know you like it, so I just got you a few Kinder Eggs. I suggest you eat them straight away. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Hang on, hang on. And I just checked the dates. They're not They're not from April to August, are they? They actually are, yeah, I'm afraid. Yeah. Oh, they look fantastic. <laughs> oh, have, some, have one there when you're on air. I know, come on, share. Sharing is caring. <laughs> no, doesn't agree with me. Doesn't agree with me. Doesn't not. Doesn't agree with anybody, that particular <laughs> variety of Kinder Egg. More on that with the Food Safety Authority a little bit later. By the way, I hear your Facebook was cloned. It was. That's a horrible, horrible thing to do. For the third time. No way. Yes. What do you feel like saying to someone who does that? So, by the way, if you received a Facebook invitation from me telling you you'd won loads and loads and loads of money, send it to me. <laughs> it wasn't real. It Is wasn't that, the real Will Faulkner. He's not that's, standing that's up. That's a horrible thing to do. I remember it happened to me years ago. Uh-oh. Happened to me years and years ago, someone created a face Facebook account in my name and had all sorts of information about me on it, which was all false. Turned out afterwards, it was Will Faulkner from Midlands 103 who created that false Facebook page. So are you suggesting what goes around comes around? No, no, it wasn't me. I'm just suggesting it's not a nice thing when it happens. And, you know, I'm glad to see maybe a little bit of payback come back to you. Well, I would love to continue the conversation, but Glenn in Burr has the first question, if you don't mind. Go on. He's looking for advice on cleaning a barbecue, which was purchased last year and only used a handful of times. However, over the winter, the cooking surface has become mouldy. Oh, yeah. Or mouldy. Mouldy. And it was stored in a shed, he wishes to stress. It wasn't out in the elements. (laughs) His wife is a hygiene freak. All right. Uh, Glenn, probably not his real name, therefore, but he's looking for an effective way of cleaning it. Right, yeah. It's not a good idea to send in a text with your real name if you're going to call your wife a freak. <laughs> so, it, it was, again, if the real Glenn in Burke, yeah. please stand There's, up. There, you're is a, in there, is, yeah. there is a message in that, yeah. Glenn. Um, yeah, look, it's it's a regular occurrence. And the funny thing is, you know, when you put your barbecue away, you you cover it so, that, you know, the dust goes, doesn't get at it. But when you cover anything that has any residue of food, so, you know, you put a a sandwich, put a smear of butter, that's all, just a smear of butter into a, into a lunchbox and put that in the shed for three months or six months, it'll be gone mouldy. So the problem is there's a film of grease left and, of course, mould grows on it. Look, it's not it's genuinely not a big deal. Uh, if it's for somebody who really, really has a has a, a phobia about hygiene things, which you know, obviously you don't have by any manner or means. I, I've seen your hygiene. Um, but have I would say... Have a hug. <laughs> no, thanks. But uh, very simple. It doesn't say whether it's gas or charcoal. It really doesn't matter you fire up the barbecue. So a lot of, most barbecues nowadays, they out, the, barbecue, the gas ones outsell the others, you know, 100 to 1. If it's a charcoal one or a gas one, you fire it up. And hopefully it's the one that has a closed down lid on it, which it almost certainly have has if it's gone mouldy because it's the fact that it's enclosed that makes it easy for the mould to grow in the first place. So you, in the case of a gas barbecue, which as I say is most of them, what you would do is close down the lid, 
turn up every burner to full and let it burn for about 10 minutes. Everything now is dead, the mould is dead, everything's incinerated and now you can wash it down. Um, I would say if it's a lot of grease there, use an oven cleaner to clean it. So obviously wait for it to cool and then use your oven cleaner. And then look, if you want to keep um, the, the uh, loved one in your life who has a hygiene phobia, uh, just give it a wipe over with Milton just to be sure, to be sure. It's honestly not necessary at all, but you know, it doesn't cost a lot. It's very easy to do it. But the high temperature will be enough to incinerate everything. There will be nothing left alive. It will be totally clean. You don't have to be worried about it. And I suppose the other thing to say is with a gas barbecue, if it has, so most gas barbecues now, all the better ones, have cast iron cooking grids. And cast iron cooking grids, if you wash them and walk away from them, the cast iron will go rusty. So it's very important. Now, the cast iron is the best. It is the very best. It's the most uniform cooking surface. It's the one that takes the heat the best. It will last the longest. But it does go rusty if you don't, if you just wash it with water. So uh, what you do is, at the end, once you're finished using it, I would always say, close it down, fire it up. Now everything's incinerated. Give it a clean, just a dry clean normally is enough because everything is incinerated. It's hygienically clean. And then get a, a rag that is, I use the same rag the whole time. It's a rag that has been impregnated with oil. Just spray on a bit of oil. You spray oil, vegetable oil, any sort of cooking mm. oil and just wipe over the surface mm. and that'll stop the rust from forming. You really shouldn't wear it the next day though, right? <laughs> Cloning one? Fuck one. Okay. By the way, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, has addressed the houses of the Oireachtas this morning and has been very warm in his comments to Ireland, saying you have not remained neutral to the disaster and to the mishaps that Russia has brought to Ukraine. I'm grateful to you, to every citizen of Ireland. Thank you for supporting the sanctions against Russia. Thank you for the humanitarian and financial support extended to our country. And thank you for caring about Ukrainian people who found shelter on your land. More uh, comments from Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, in our news at 11. Now, can you ask Brian, oh, this is one we had last week, but... It seems to be uh, an increasing occurrence. Silverfish, this time in the bathroom, but also in the kitchen from PJ in Tullamore. Yeah, so we, we get this. They, they tend to be around the whole year. They're not, you know, they, they, they seem to survive all year round. They're not like one of these creatures that only come mm. out at certain times of the year. Look, they Well, are, for some reason, we're getting a lot of questions about them in these last two or three weeks. Yeah, OK, maybe, well... Yeah, maybe they are. No, I think they're there all year round. But anyway, look... Maybe, maybe it's because we're getting up at a different hour of the morning we're spotting them. Yes... That could be it. Mm. Yeah, good man will. Very astute. Uncharacteristic. The brains, the brains of the Uncharacteristically astute of you. So you're going to get either one or two things. You're going to get your um, uh, ant and crawling insect powder or ant and crawling insect spray. The powder you just put all around the edges and you. I what I do is I brush it in so with a paintbrush into the crevices under the skirting board, you know, under the fridge, so it's not visible, and just leave it there. If when they crawl over it, they die. Um, and actually, I didn't realise that they, they, I thought they just stayed on the floor, but um, we went out to Wexford for a week, and we have a little ceramic thing that holds eggs, so it, it holds, I think, a dozen eggs, and it has, so therefore it has a dozen little, like little miniature egg, egg cups. But I found some silverfish in that little thing up on the counter worktop. So they do actually crawl up onto the counter. Um, 
Thanks, so, Brian. Oh, That's sure. really giving heebie-jeebies now. Just realised my wife is in the car going to Port Leash and listening to that. Sorry, Rona. Oh, I right. forgot to mention that. Uh, yeah, okay. Oops. <laughs> Trouble in the uh, paradise. Anyway, so we have a solution. So, anti crawling insect powder all around the edges or an, an insecticidal spray like Insectrol, like Deathlac. Uh, it wouldn't come to be death lack one of these insecticidal sprays that you spray on the ground and uh, but I think the powder is the handiest alrighty Brian Clunan is here from Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore until 11 after which why you don't want kinder eggs as a present ah you do Will yeah have, no I don't have a, have a no, little taste there no I don't I'll pass on the kinder thank you very much that's a surprise I could do with that <laughs> now our next query on WhatsApp. What are the tiny insects? They're like tiny worms. And they're in my house, says Marie. How do you get rid of them? We're not back to the silverfish again, are we? It doesn't, it doesn't sound like it. Tiny need little worms. a bit more information. Now, I will say the ant and crawling insect powder that I mentioned, which almost all of them contain permethrin, which is an organic insecticide, um, they kill, that powder kills 90% of creepy crawlies, for want of a better word, that come into the house. Uh, if they crawl on the ground, 95% probably that will do it. So I would say it depends where they are. You know, it's obviously there are hundreds of thousands of insects in Ireland. Mm. It's incredible, the number of different types. So it's, you know, it's, it can be hard to define what's what the problem is without maybe pictures and even well, that. Well, actually on that, Marie, if you have a photo yeah. or the next time you see them, grab the camera phone, take a snap, WhatsApp it to us. Or collect a few, collect a few and put them in the post to Will here at Midlands 103. Yes, please do. <laughs> I love fan mail. <laughs> I get it all. By the way, I genuinely, we, I'd say there's not, there's not a week goes by that someone doesn't come into our shop with a plastic bag, a jam jar, with either a creepy crawly or a weed or, you know, an insect or something that you're kind of saying, we'll make sure and put that in the bin afterwards. <laughs> you're just after reminding me of my nana. Lord be good to her. She used to collect big spiders in a jam jar because she knew a friend of mine, Brian Keogh. Had a fear. Petrified. Oh, no. <laughs> and so whenever he'd walk into the house, hi, Brian, have a look at that. When we had a girl used to work in the office years ago, and I, now I, I, in my defence, I was only a young lad, but I was in a joke shop. She had an absolute phobia of spiders, and I was in a joke shop, and they had a big black spider with a small bit of clear plastic hose from it and a little puffer at the end. You know the little, you know the old-fashioned horn on a bicycle. You press mm, it, and, mm. and it makes the noise. So when you pressed the little bulb of air at the bottom, this thing jumped. But the corollary of that was that if you if you pressed it and put something heavy on it and let go it jumped so Brian as a you know teenager put a pile of books that I knew this girl was going to lift and then uh, the spider jumped and I felt so even as a young teenager I felt so guilty afterwards because she could be heard screaming a mile away it was a terrible thing to do in retrospect seemed like a great idea seemed like it was going to be very funny but she was so distraught, it wasn't a nice thing to do. He says 50 years later. <laughs> I did apologise at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, next query comes from 
Jessica, who says the ants are back. We've got a theme going here, don't we? Yeah, the creepy crawly week. We used to get ant traps and they worked fantastically well. Okay. But is there any long-term solution that will work? In other words, uninvite the guests. No. Simple answer. Just you have to use, unfortunately, now look, if you could move the house to Antarctica, you won't have a problem. Oh, that's practical. Yeah. The other one is you use the traps every every year. It's Look, put them down at the start of the year. They last for months. Put them outside and cover them against the rain. The ants will always find them. If they're there, they will find them. I always say put them outside because there's no point in putting them inside and bring the ants into the house to find them. They will find them wherever you put them, but just they have to be covered against the rain. And if they last for months, that's it. Just put them down. And honestly, if you put them down, there are people who get them every year, put them down, and they just never see an ant. And of course, after two years or three years, and they say, ah, no, I don't need to do it now. The ants are gone. And then they don't put them down, and then of course the ants appear in. So just put them down. If you, if you've, sorry, if <laughs> there's no need to put them down unless you've had a history of the ants coming in. But if you have an ongoing history of the ants coming in, and it seems to be very much prevalent in the Midlands as opposed to other parts of the country, I think. Um, certainly talking to some of the suppliers that we we, we get them from, there's, there's certainly a major, a major problem with ants in the Midlands. A mum from Castletown has called. Okay. You know when you let your five-year-old and a friend's five-year-old get together unsupervised? Oh no, what did they do? So while the friends were over anyway, the adults were chatting, kiddies went into the playroom and they went a little bit wild because there was a large whiteboard full of scribbles, which is fine if they yeah. stuck to the whiteboard. Oh, no. But they moved on to the wall. And this was fantastic because they redecorated the whole room and then proudly showed oh, mum, no. dad and all kit and caboodle. So they have tried white spirits, but the white spirits have not removed the scribbles. What's the next DEFCOM level? <laughs> well, I suppose the first thing I'd say is, you, depending on what was used, really, it's so hard to know what was used. Um, I would always say just hot soapy water first, so a nylon scarring pad, you know, the green or white nylon scarring pad. Um, <coughs> excuse me. I think you're being optimistic there. If the white spirits didn't work, that soap and no, water... No, would... you see, what was used? So the big thing is what was used, because some things will not respond at all to white spirits. At mm. all. all right. You know, if they're not spirit-based... It's not going to work. It won't make any difference. So the fact that I would normally say methylated spirits is much better than white spirits. Methylated spirits is the purple one or else gin, vodka that you might have in the house or surgical spirits. Just try it. Just try it. If that works, you know how to use it. At least you know it works and then you can buy your little bottle of methylated spirits because that's cheaper. Okay. Um, and But it's amazing. A hot soapy water. The other thing, what often works? What's, what works incredibly well? Baby wipes. Whatever the heck is it, they mm. almost certainly have baby wipes in the house. What I would do is wrap a baby wipe around a nail brush or the scouring pad. So you have the, the scrubbing action of the nail brush forward slash scrubbing uh, nylon scouring pad, but with the baby wipe. And what you're doing is you're going through a fresh bit of the wipe each time. You're not dragging the, co the, the color across a bigger area. Now, if I'm honest, I don't think you'll get it all off but try that. Failing that, if you have to repaint, make sure you use a stain block first because there's nothing more annoying than painting over a stain like that and standing back and the job done and then a day later you see it starting to bleed through the paint. So if, you, if the cleaning doesn't work and you're painting, you have to use a stain block. 
083 30 10 103. That is the number you can text or WhatsApp if you have a question for Brian, who's here for the next 10 minutes or so. After which, what's wrong with your Kinder Egg or indeed other Kinder Surprise products? The Food Safety Authority is on the case. Catherine recommends putting bay leaves in your press if you've got a silverfish problem because they don't like them, apparently. Oh, great. So, particularly if you have a bay leaf a tree in the garden. And mm-hmm. we, we used to have one out in Killy. And when we lived, sorry, we live in Tullamore now. We used to live in Killy and we used to have a bay tree in the garden. It was lovely. You could do, you know, it was lovely for the for flavours as well and certain things. Joe says, for heaven's sake, why do people hate all these insects? They do no harm. But if you must put down a layer of salt outside, it won't kill them, but they won't pass over it. Very good. Now yeah, I have to, that. Like, and look, I have to say the silverfish. I don't bother with the silverfish at all because they don't bother me. Um, but if you have a phobia or if you have a thing about it, you can understand. Um, I often tell the story of a guy who was making little of a, a female customer in the shop who had a phobia about mice, and he was laughing at her basically. And I happen to know from a previous encounter he had a phobia about spiders. But he thought this was hilarious, that her phobia was hilarious. He didn't think his was hilarious. Mm. So it's, you know. Good for the goose, good for the gander. Yeah. Will I put an ant stop outside, but still had ants inside, and it wasn't until I placed it inside that I finally got rid of them? Okay, that's, I haven't heard that before, but look, there's two in a pack, put one inside, put one outside, and that keeps everyone happy. All right. Next query then comes from John in Rochford Bridge. And he says, we recently had cobble lock on our driveway, power washed. Now, unfortunately, and this happened to somebody else a few weeks ago, I think. I can see what I know is going to happen. You know what's going to happen. I bet you know the problem, yeah. Well, well, a few few of the cobble locks are loose. All right, because the the filling is gone. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So you should really not, you should try to avoid power washing cobble lock because... Look, it's just resand it. If you want, you can get the the buckets of of uh, two pack thing. There's a two pack grout filler patio filler that sets like cement, but you just put it on dry, and when the air gets gets at it, it sets. Otherwise, you just get the coloured sand. But really, cleaning power cobble lock, I would always say just use use an algae killer, which is uh, you know a bio based product that is quite harmless to to the environment, or if you really, really need to do it, you can use bleach, but that's obviously not as harmless to, to the environment. But try not to power wash cobble lock. It, 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 it always ends in tears. All right. Also still on the agenda today, the Fair Deal Scheme. It's the Nursing Home Support Scheme. And it's going to be changed so that you can rent out your home after you go into a nursing home. At the moment, you have to give over 80% of that income to pay for your nursing home care, which makes it uneconomical by the time you take out your expenses, not to mention your tax. Which, of course, leaves a lot of houses empty because I know a couple of people who have this case where their parents are in a nursing home and the house is sitting there unused. And in the current you know, accommodation crisis, hmm. it makes sense to, to make it, make it uh, that you can, it, it's uh, viable to rent it out. Here's a question that I have, and we'll put it to a government TD later. Their original plan was to do this in the fourth quarter of the year. All right. Now they've suddenly found the means to bring it forward. Okay. Accepted there's a crisis in Ukraine, absolutely. But why, therefore, was there a delay to begin with? Yes. Anyway, more on that later. 
Our next question for Brian, let's stick with DIY, from Noel, who says, in the upstairs bathroom, the bath is fibreglass, and after a long time investigating, we discovered a leak. There's a hairline crack in the bath. Now, it's a tight space, so it would involve a lot of work replacing this bath. Is there a glue or a filler that can be used to repair it? Yeah, so I suppose it, it, have they isolated exactly where it is? It does sound like they have. Always, I know I always say it, but just always remember that a, a leak doesn't always present uh, where you yeah, think the leak yeah. is coming from. It goes to It'll the dribble point. down. And but it sounds like they've identified where the crack is. So hopefully, they say it's a tight space, hopefully they can access in underneath the bath where the hairline crack is. So if you can get underneath, just go to a motor factory shop and get a fiberglass kit. And a fiberglass kit is a piece of material, looks, you know, it's a, it's a piece of material with netting in it, for want of a better description, and you soak it in fiberglass liquid and then you pat it, stick it onto it. It'll stick to it of its own accord and you push it into place. And then that sets really, really hard. And if so, if you had a canoe, that was so a fiberglass canoe that had a hole in it. For some reason, you know, it fell off the roof rack in the car and there's a hole in the canoe the size of your fist or the size of a coin or whatever. This is what you would put over it. And once it sets, it's completely waterproof. It has great adhesion. There will be no more leaks. Now, if it's a case that the... And the reason you're doing this is that it's very effective but completely invisible because it's in underneath. Now, if the bath and it may be built into something that you can't get in underneath where the, where the crack is, to the bottom half, what I would do then is get a clear epoxy. In fact, even, even just get the resin... No, it'd be cheaper. Just get a clear epoxy glue or or the resin that's used in the fiberglass kit, which you can buy on its own and the hardener, mix a little bit and just brush it on. What you're really trying to do is get it down into the hairline crack and slightly on the surface. Now, it's clear, but it will be, it'll be visible to you because you'll know, you know, you'll know to look for it, but it won't be that visible. It's like putting on a clear nail varnish. You know, it'll be there, it'll be slightly different than the nail beside it that doesn't have the nail varnish, the clear nail varnish on it, but it will stop the water from going through. But the fiberglass mat in underneath is definitely the best way to do it if you can. All right. Brian, we're out of time. Thank you very much for joining us. And Thanks, next uh, Wednesday, 20 past 10. Look forward to it already. Great. That's not an invitation, by the way. <laughs> You'll find him at Clunan's Hardware in Tullamore in the meantime. On the news at 11, Ed Sheeran and his big high court action in which there was allegations of copyright infringement over the track Shape of You. Well, a verdict has been delivered. Was there plagiarism or was there not plagiarism? That's coming up in the next few minutes. Also today, what to expect from the Irish economy over the next 12 months. It's not all bad news. Why you shouldn't be eating Kinder just now, or at least check the dates if you've got some in the press. And the fair deal scheme. All the changes on the cards. Now, still on the agenda today, the Food Safety Authority is warning about a variety of Kinder products. We'll tell you which ones, uh, particularly if you have little ones in the house who might be opening them for Easter. Uh, Some are okay, some are not. It's really down to the dates, the best before dates on these products. And changes to the fair deal nursing home scheme. At the moment... 
If you or a loved one goes into a nursing home, the state will pay a contribution towards their care, but you are limited when it comes to renting your home. If you decide to do that, 80% of the income will be counted towards your nursing home contribution. And by the time you take out expenses and so on, it's just not economical. But that's changing. The question is when. So back to that in around half an hour. What to expect from the Irish economy over the next 12 months? Well, despite the war in Ukraine, despite the hangover of COVID and despite its collective impact on consumer confidence, the central bank is still hopeful that economic growth will take place, but perhaps not at the rate that was originally forecast. Now, economist Jim Power is with us. He's been reading over what the central bank has to say. Thanks for taking our call, Jim. Good morning. Good morning, Will. How are you doing? Inflation is obviously going to be a feature of this. So how does it factor into the forecast? Okay, um, I I guess the place to start is what exactly is the central bank saying? Um, A few months ago, it was at the end of last year, or the beginning of this year, it was forecasting that modified domestic demand, which is the real measure of economic activity on the ground when you strip out uh, a lot of the multinational stuff that distorts economic activity, uh, it was forecasting growth of 7.1%. That has now been revised back to 4.8. And for next year, they're revising growth from 5.2 to 4.3. Okay, but l- focusing on this year, a 4.8% growth rate for the Irish economy, which I think looks very realistic, uh, would still be a good outturn for our economy, but obviously not as good as um, could have been the case if the Ukrainian situation um, had not happened. Um, the, I, I guess there's a number of areas in which this all feeds true, okay? Um, if you think about before the savage Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, we were already dealing with a lot of supply problems because of the aftermath of COVID-19, and inflation was already starting to become a problem. Uh, the crisis in Ukraine has totally exacerbated all of those pressures. And I think there are three key areas which they will feed through to inflation here and to economic activity. One is on the energy front. We've seen oil prices, natural gas prices rise dramatically over recent months. And and we're seeing that being reflected in the petrol and diesel pumps. And also, and I think more worryingly for many people, in electricity and gas bills in recent times. Okay. Secondly, there is metal commodities. Um, That part of the world is a major supplier of metals that are vital for activity like aluminium, palladium, and and so on. So there's serious upper price pressures there and also a scarcity of those materials. And that, of course, will feed directly into the construction sector. The third area, and this is probably the most worrying one at this juncture, is on the food side. Um, In February, Irish food price inflation hit 2.9%. Nothing like as high as inflation in the rest of the economy, but that was the highest rate of inflation since 2008. And what we're now facing over the coming months is um, wheat prices are up dramatically, up by 65% in the last year, because obviously Russia and Ukraine, particularly Ukraine, a major supplier of global wheat supply. And of course, wheat feeds into many other foodstuffs. We're also seeing um, potash, uh, which is a major ingredient in fertilizer that is used to grow food and grow crops and so on. 
um, that's also heavily concentrated in that part of the world. So we're likely to see food price inflation rise significantly over the com- <coughs> excuse me over the coming months. So. In, in, in what sort there, of order, Jim? If you're seeing, for instance, a 65% increase in wheat, um, how might that translate into overall food prices? Okay, there's, there's, there's an interesting um, sort of dilemma here, Will, that we don't know the answer to at the moment, okay? Um, in the food supply chain, you have the primary producer, you have the sort of manufacturer in the middle, and then you have the retailer. And One of the reasons why we've not had much food price inflation over recent years is because the retailer is the most powerful part of the supply chain and retailers have been engaging in, you know, aggressive price competition at the retail level. Of course, the two discounters, Aldi and Lidl, have been driving that competitive environment in recent years. Um, So it'll be interesting to see over the coming months, you know, the cost of producing food, all of the input costs, are rising dramatically, okay? So for primary producers and indeed for manufacturers, the cost of doing what they do is rising significantly. And that logically should feed through to significantly higher prices at the retail level. But it'll be interesting to see how the retailers actually react to this. You know, will they go down and put the squeeze on the primary producers and indeed the manufacturers? And perhaps you won't get the same level of retail price inflation on the food side that you would logically expect. But that in turn creates serious difficulties for primary producers and manufacturers. Um, So it's hard to tell really what's going to happen. But I think it is inevitable over the coming months you will see, um, you know, food price inflation probably rising to maybe 8, 10% year on year, Mm. which is the highest rate of food price inflation in living memory. It's also one of the hardest aspects of inflation to escape. Uh, along with yeah, energy, yes, we all is. need energy, but we all need food as well. And We, we do, and, and I guess the point about energy is that, you know, at least we're now moving into a time of the year when um, the demand for energy falls significantly because uh, hopefully warmer weather yes, and so crossed. on. Um, whereas the food thing, as you say, you know, it's an essential ingredient of life and uh, people have no choice. So, um, yeah, it's the, the food thing is, is the bit, I guess, I would worry about most at the moment from the perspective of um, the public. So back to this forecast of 4% odd growth in the wider economy, if you strip out inflation, though, um, we're probably going backwards in real terms in buying power, are we? Yes, 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 we are. Uh, ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, if, um, you know, modified domestic demand increases by 4.8%, um, inflation is likely to average, well, the central bank is saying 6.5%. So that would represent a real decline in people's purchasing power. Uh, that there, there is no doubt about that. And, and this then gives rise to the next dilemma. You know, how do people respond to that decline in their real incomes? Um, the obvious way and the traditional way of dealing with that is looking for higher wages. And of course, if you look for higher wages, that then further increases the uh, cost of doing business for businesses and it, it becomes a vicious cycle. So, um, I, I would, I have to say, like to see um, that sort of wage price spiral being avoided. Um, I would, I would like to see, um, you know, trade unions 
not becoming too aggressive at the moment in these very exceptional circumstances. Um, but I also do think that there is a role for government to step in to try and offer some financial support to those that are most vulnerable in this situation. And by vulnerable, I mean you're, t- you're talking about people on low incomes, you're talking about people on fixed incomes like pensioners and so on. Um, so I, I think targeted financial support for groups like that will be important. But the, yeah, the, the dilemma, ri- though, is how to target. For instance, the yes. energy uh, compensation, €200 Euro towards your bill, which kicks in in a month or two, that's already been swallowed up. So what might make a lasting impact? Well, I, I mean, you, you could see, like the pandemic unemployment payment, you could see direct financial subventions to the most vulnerable. Um, not not easy um, and, and very difficult to target it in the right ways. Um, other ways of doing it would be, and, and I guess this would benefit everybody, of course, but if they use the tax system like, you know, further reductions in excise duty, um, reductions in the VAT rate, um, help people through the tax system. Another way to help lower income workers would be, for example, to, um, you know, increase the threshold at which they start to pay tax. So that's something that normally happens to a limited degree in the budget. Um, But perhaps you could have a uh, sort of a mini budget at this stage that would make those sorts of changes to try and put money back into people's pockets through the tax system. Alison has a question for you. She's considering fixing her mortgage at the moment, fixing the rate. And she's wondering what you expect in terms of interest rates to combat inflation. Well, um, you know, it it seems inevitable that interest rates will rise over the next couple of years. Um, We've already seen the Bank of England and the U.S. central bank start that process. They will continue. By the end of this year, it's likely that the European central bank will follow suit. Um, the, 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 The problem in answering the question that the listener asked there is that fixed mortgage rates are determined by government bond yields. Okay, and unfortunately, in the last three or four weeks, government bond yields have been rising significantly. Okay, Um, I'm not sure if that's yet been reflected in the fixed mortgage rates that financial institutions are offering, but it appears inevitable to me that fixed mortgage rates will rise along with variable mortgage rates um, over the coming months. So, what I would say is you go to your provider, you see what they offer you at the moment, and I would do it immediately. You see what they offer you, the variable, uh, maybe a two, a five, ten-year fixed rate, and um, you make your decision based on that. Uh, I, I can't give a, bl- a blanket answer to that question, to be honest, because I don't know the individual circumstances. Sure, no, but if, but, if we but take in it in theory, the round. In, in principle, I would say, and, and I have been saying this to people for the last three or four months, that they should look seriously at fixing their mortgage. If we take it in the round, a greater chunk of your income is probably going to go towards interest over the next couple of years. Your purchasing power is going to diminish because of inflation. So technically, it might not be a recession because there's still economic growth, but it's going to feel like one. For, for some people, it will. Absolutely. You know, for people of my age group that are have come out the other end of the mortgage jungle, um, it won't feel like a recession, um, I hope. <laughs> Um, but there, there are people, you know, caught in the middle, and I, I, I really pity people, sort of maybe between 25, late 20s, 
and into their mid-40s. They're the people that tend to have the highest um, expenses in living, you know, like childcare, the mortgage, and so on. Um, they are the ones that are really, really vulnerable in this situation, and they are the ones, of course, that for them it will feel like a recession. That there is, there is an old joke that um, a a recession is when your neighbour loses his or her job. A depression is when you lose your job. And, um, mm. you know, so th- these things, unfortunately, affect different people in different ways. And, um, you know, that age segment I mentioned there, sort of late 20s into the mid 40s, uh, they are the ones that have been really, really financially squeezed at the moment. And they are the ones that are at the cutting edge of the housing crisis we have in the country and the childcare crisis. I'm so, loath to end on a downer, Jim, but is there any silver lining in this? Well, you know, the, the, the silver lining is that our economy um, coming into this year was doing, and it's still actually doing really well. You know, there's, there's a lot of growth happening. Um, the economy, we have two and a half million people in employment, which is the highest level we've ever seen in this country. So we, we do have a strong economic model and foreign direct investment is obviously an important part of that to varying degrees in different regions around the country. Um, that's all very, very positive. So, um, you know, the, the, the problem is that, you know, we've been hit in the last couple of years by two major shocks, COVID, which we were starting to emerge from. Um, and the second one, obviously, is the horrific situation in Ukraine. Um, you know, we, we will come out the other end of this. And I think uh, you, you would hope through government support that the most vulnerable um, parts of our society will be protected to the greatest extent possible. We will come out the other end, you know, there's there's no doubt about that. But getting from here to there could be painful for some people. Jim, always great to talk with you. Thank you for your analysis and thank you for your time. You're very welcome, Will. Thank you. That's independent economist Jim Power. Next, why kinder products are being recalled. Which ones exactly... And what's the issue? I love Kinder Chocolate. Do you love Kinder Chocolate? Unfortunately, there's a recall from the Food Safety Authority. They're concerned after a number of cases of salmonella. Let's find out exactly what the issue is and in which products. Dr Wayne Anderson is Director of Food Science and Standards with the Food Safety Authority. Wayne, good morning. Good morning, Will. How did this come to your attention? Well, this recall has actually been a recall that's been done by the manufacturer of these products, uh, Ferreira, and they're uh, they're recalling all of these products. So we're uh, we're publicising it to make sure people know about it. Uh, but they're the ones that have uh, decided which products need to be recalled. So this is a recall, not just in Ireland, I believe, also in France, Germany, Sweden, Netherlands, UK, where again other cases have been reported. So that's quite. That's correct. It's a global recall, actually, of all of these uh, products that are manufactured in a particular factory in uh, in Belgium. So what is the risk, conscious that some people may be getting the news after they've eaten them? Yeah, um, well, I mean, salmonella uh, is, is, a, is a nasty bug. It makes you sick. You After uh, you, get, you eat it, it's possibly up to three days, maybe, before you actually get any symptoms. But uh, the most common one is diarrhoea. 
uh, can sometimes be uh, be bloody in, in extreme cases, but mostly it's diarrhoea, and, and you can get fever, vomiting, and headache, or other other possible uh, symptoms as well. But then those sort of symptoms are also associated with other things as well, viruses and uh, a number of other bacteria as well. So it's never easy to know mm. unless you go to the doctor and they test you and find salmonella. How does salmonella get into the food chain? Um, mostly uh, salmonella is found on things like eggs, uh, chicken meat, pig meat, that kind of thing. It's it's not common to be in chocolate. Uh, there have been a number of uh, outbreaks, a few of them over the years, but it isn't very often. This particular case, uh, we still don't know how it's got in there. It's possible it could either uh, be there on the cocoa powder coming into the factory or it could be part of the milk uh, powders or it could be just a contaminant within the factory itself. But we don't really know at this stage. Uh, those investigations are ongoing. I'm going to give the list. Uh, so bear with me. There are quite a few products affected. There are, yeah. So again, these have best before dates of April 20th to August 21st. 75 gram Kinder Mini Eggs, 150 gram Kinder Egg Hunt Kit, Kinder Surprise, 100 grams. You'll have to help me on this next pronunciation, Wayne. Kinder Choco Bonds, is it? Choco Bonds, yeah, apparently. 200 grams. And then with best before dates, July 11th to October 7th, Kinder Surprise, 20 gram single, Kinder Surprise, 20 gram by three. Do we have any idea how many of these might be on shelves? We don't know at this stage. The the Kinder Surprise 20 grams and the Kinder Surprise 20 gram by three uh, were part of an initial recall on uh, announced on Saturday and uh, there's been a lot of work going on by uh, the shops etc to to remove this product and and get this back from people so those products in particular um should have been recalled earlier but uh, you never know there might be still some out there and people need to check the eggs that they have to make sure they have the right uh, best before dates on the other products are, are new um, and the four four different products all have that best before date, 20th of April to the 21st of, April, of August. So there might be dates in between that, but it's, uh, it's mm. a date range, 20th of April to 21st of August. And they're, uh, they're the ones people need to check and check them well before Easter. Regarding the cases in Ireland, I understand there are 10, including some young children. Have they all recovered? Yes, my understanding from uh, clinical colleagues is that they've all recovered and it do, they do include uh, some children as well. Finally, Wayne, when something like this happens and accepted the manufacturer has put the hands up, so to speak, how do you investigate afterwards how it happened? Generally, um, for, for this particular case, because the factory is in Belgium, it will be up for the uh, Belgian authorities to uh, to engage with the company in the investigation. Uh, they will then work through how it happened, when it happened, looking at all the samples they've taken. It's usually done by um, a, an examination of the uh, bacteria they find in the factory. Sometimes you never really find out, uh, unfortunately, but uh, a big effort goes into trying to find out because that's the way we learn how to control things in the future. So it's really important. But I'd say to everybody, uh, you know, if you have these uh, products in your house with those best before dates, please don't eat them. Dr. Wayne Anderson, grateful for your time. Thank you for taking the call.
Thank you, Bill. He's Director of Food Science and Standards at the Food Safety Authority. The full list, if you need to hear it again, midlands103.com. And we've listed it there, or the Midlands 103 Facebook page. Next, a rather disturbing stabbing incident in Longford. We'll bring you the details. And if you or a loved one has availed of the Fair Deal nursing home scheme and there's a house empty as a result and you haven't been able to rent heretofore because of restrictions in the scheme, well, they're going to be lifted. The question is when? And we'll try and get an answer for you in 15 minutes. Let's go to the streets of Longford where a man in his 20s is in Gartha custody after being arrested in connection with an alleged stabbing in the town yesterday. Liam Cosgrave is a journalist with the Longford Leader. Thank you very much for taking our call, Liam. What can you tell us? Well, well this incident happened yesterday just after three o'clock on the main street in Longford town. Uh, very busy shopping afternoon. A lot of people milling about. Um, and a man in his, his early 20s suffered a number of uh, uh, suspected stab wounds on the body, facial neck area um, and he was he was treated at the scene uh, for, for a considerable period of time before being brought to uh, Mullingar's Midland Regional Hospital where he remains um, this morning. Um, now a, a man also in his 20s was arrested later later that evening uh, in connection with the incident and was brought to Granite Garda Station where he's been held on detention <laughs> for a period of up to 24 hours where he's whether where he can be either released or charged, and this is this will I thought it's 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 not been confirmed, but um, it's it's suspected to be just the latest in a long line of feud-related incidents uh, that have that have gripped gripped the Midlands town over the last number of weeks, um, and you know this I suppose I've, I've been talking to local businesses this morning, members of the public milling around the streets here, and. Um, a lot of people are just calling for, you know, increase, more, more, more guard of visibility on the streets, increased armed support unit patrols. Um, and just a great, I suppose, greater security focus being placed on Longford um, to, I suppose, bring, bring Longford back to the place everyone in the town knows it is, which is a thriving business, business community and a, and a great place to uh, bring up a family and, and work in. I was reading your description in the Longford Leader of... Uh, the reaction from uh, the owner of Luigi's, and uh, this is nearby where it happened. It, it was surreal how uh, the man Peter Vocello was seen wiping blood away from his arms after rushing to this man's aid. What did he tell you? Well, to be honest, uh, well, not a whole pile really, because it was it was only after happening. I was, I suppose, you could say I was there within minutes of it happening. Um, the guard arrived more or less at the same time I did. Um, and he was he was in a state of shock. I suppose he was he was trying to keep people from coming into the premises because obviously that's a crime scene and would have been cordoned off later on for, for a technical and forensic examination to be carried out. Um, and uh, you know he was he was just completely dark. He told me you know he's been in, in business three decades or so, and he, he was just lost for words. He said, what, what can I do? I'm, tr- I'm trying to run a business here and you're putting up with the likes of this. You know, it's, it's, it's soul-destroying for us, both the ordinary sole trader uh, to, you know, to keep the doors open 
um, especially in the current climate. We're only after coming out of nearly two years of uh, coronavirus enforced restrictions. And when you have this on top of that, you know, and it, it really is, it really is tough on businesses. You also heard an eyewitness account of, of what was alleged to have happened. And again, bearing in mind, three o'clock in the afternoon, broad daylight. What did you hear? Well, talking to a couple of people that were um, that were actually in the in the restaurant at the time, they they said that they spotted two two men coming into the into the restaurant shortly after three o'clock, and one of the men take it out, take it out, take it out your pocket, take it out your pocket. Now, whether that was reference to a knife or a, some sort of a weapon, and um, you know, I, I'm not sure, but. Um, it was. It spilled over from there. Then there was a bit of a scuffle uh, in, in, in the just inside the door, and then it, uh, I think the alleged victim then tried to escape his, his, his assailant by running in behind the counter, which is where he allegedly uh, attacked And then the, um, the the suspect then escaped from the scene on foot. And within minutes, then paramedics arrived, and. My, I myself arrived on the scene along with Gardy then, uh, and the scene then was quickly cordoned off. Um, Gardy shut the area down, and, uh, and and the investigation got underway. Mm. And the suspect is still being questioned, is he? That's right. Well, the suspect is still being questioned. He's still in custody in, Ga- in Granite Garda Station, um, and he can be held for a, for a number of hours. For a number of hours, it has to be charged. Either charged or released sometime later today. Um, so I suppose that's a, it's a rolling situation. We don't know at this stage uh, what's actually going to happen. We have to wait and see. But um, yeah, it's just, I suppose people, people today on the streets along are just I suppose coming to terms with what happened yesterday and, and trying to get back some some semblance of normality. Liam, I appreciate your time and thank you. You can keep up to date with that story on the Longford leader, Liam Cosgrove. It's coming up on 25 to 12 now on Midlands 103 and changes to the Fair Deal nursing home scheme are being brought forward nearly by six months actually uh, because of the crisis in Ukraine which makes you wonder why they weren't able to make these changes happen sooner. Uh, The reason they're doing so is they reckon it'll free up 8,000 properties that are empty at the moment because of certain restrictions in rent and what you would have to pay towards your nursing home care. We'll explain everything in the next few minutes. Maureen in Mount Malik, thank you for your message. Going back to the previous conversation about the economy and who needs to be protected, when inflation comes knocking at your door, you're flying the flag for elderly people and argue that free care must remain part of the plan because many people worked incredibly hard over the years, raised their families, paid their taxes, Every decent elderly person wants to pass their property to their children without having to hand over a percentage of it for their care. Everyone should rebel against it. No one should sign up. Now, what this is moving towards is our next conversation, which concerns the Fair Deal Nursing Home Scheme. And the state will pay part of your care But how big that amount is depends on what you have in the bank, how valuable your home is, how much income you have, whether it's a pension, whether maybe you've dividends from stocks and shares, and so on. And in effect, the less you have, the more the state will pay. 
But where this becomes difficult is when you've an empty house and mum or dad or aunt or uncle or whomever it is has moved into a nursing home, that home, if it's rented, 80% of the rental income goes towards the cost of care. And when you take out the repairs that you'll have to do, fixtures and fittings, uh, any additional costs that are incurred, tax and so on, it's just not economical when you have to give 80% of the revenue back to the state. But that's changing. We'll get into the timeline for this in a few minutes. An update on the Ukrainian position as regards refugees coming to Ireland because many people have asked about the Red Cross and why you may not have heard back on an offer of accommodation. So the picture is, at the moment, 18,628 people have come to Ireland. 11,000 of those require help with accommodation because some others are staying with friends, relatives, family and so on. So, of those, many are staying in hotels, bed and breakfasts, in hostels. The problem is, we're going to have, by Easter, 32,000 people in Ireland. That's an additional 14 over and above those who are already here in the next 10 days or so. And there's only so many hotel rooms, only so many hostel beds. And the Red Cross is working as fast as it can to get through the offers it has received, but only a small number have so far been allocated. So, the dilemma for ministers is, how do they free up other accommodation for not just these people, but there was an existing housing crisis to begin with? And one of the measures that ministers were briefed on yesterday concerns the Fair Deal Nursing Home Scheme. Joe Flaherty is a Fianna Fáil TD in Longford, Westmeath. Joe, good morning. Good morning, Will. Do we know how many homes are empty that are linked to Fair Deal, and can you tell us why they're empty? Yeah, I suppose at the outset we'd have to say that the uh, nursing home support scheme, or what we would refer to as the Fair Deal scheme, has been operational now since 2009. Over 23,000 people participating in the scheme and it cost over a billion a year. It's probably one of the things that we do very well in this country. We do afford care to people that do need it when they go into long-term residential care. Uh, significant changes were made to the scheme last year under the Nursing Home Support Scheme Amendment Bill 2021, which uh, removed a situation where after and, and allowed a situation where after three years the value of family-owned farms and businesses are no longer taken into account when calculating the cost of a person's nursing home care. So that would bring me then probably to the point that you want to discuss is at the moment if you were to rent out a family home that it, it would be uh, open to um, uh, being the rent on that would be calculated as part of your income. Now in tandem with that as part of his Housing for All plan, Minister uh, Dara O'Brien said that he wanted to remove this uh, uh, clause and to uh, exempt rental income from the scheme and in around late last summer uh, discussions would have commenced between the Department of Health and the Department of Housing and also the Attorney General to try and arrive at a situation where this could be, could be action. Uh, there would be some concerns initially in the Department of Health that they, 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 that change could in particular uh, 
give rise to elder abuse and the possibility of some people maybe being forced into nursing homes too soon in anticipation of the houses being rented out and the rental income coming in on that. uh, Just flesh that out for me because the rental income surely would accrue to the elderly person rather than to family members, no? Well, you had to ensure that there was safeguards in place. I'm being assured um, that that, that that has been... A matter has been dealt with. I know it was a key concern of Minister Mary Butler, who was the architect of the amendment uh, bill last year. She's been assured of that uh, as of today. I know the department, the two departments are meeting again to try and move this forward. Obviously, it's brought back into the limelight with the arrival of of our Ukrainians and I'm just out of the Dáil Chamber where uh, President Zelensky spoke very passionately as indeed our own uh, Taoiseach Michal Martin and he says that we stand absolute and resolutely with the people of Ukraine. They're facing into a, a humanitarian crisis. One of our colleagues, Cahal Berry, says this is our modern day Srebrenica and uh, we have as a society and as a country we have to stand shoulder to shoulder with the Ukrainian people. Um, the, and Taoiseach says that he wanted Ireland to provide a safe harbour for these people. We are doing that. It is going to put a strain on the country's resources and its, on its infrastructure in terms of housing, certainly. And it brought a focus back on the what many would argue is our vacant houses arising from an anomaly in the Fair Deal scheme. Now, I've seen suggestions in the media that it could be as many as 8,000 houses in this situation. Uh, to come to probably your earlier question was how, how many houses is it? Uh, government figures would indicate that the figure is probably closer to 4,800 when you factor in houses that are being affected by probate and probably okay. couldn't be rented out anyway. So and, in and order then, you're and then allowing for that some people may decide not to rent the family home for personal yes. reasons as well. Yes. And, and already then some uh, there is an exemption at the moment where you can rent it out to a fam- family member or a child under 21 years of age. So some of the homes are. So ballpark, you're probably talking somewhere between four and a half to 5,000 homes that, that c- could be activated either for people uh, here that are already affected by the housing crisis or obviously for our Ukrainian visitors. Originally, in the Housing for All plan, this measure was predicted to be the end of the year, the final quarter, final three months. So if it's now possible to bring it forward, why couldn't we have done that to begin with? Um, it's not a case that's being brought forward. There's been ongoing discussions. I know the, it was referred to the Attorney General immediately after the legislation passed, the amendment passed last July, and he was look, looking at it to see what needed to be done. Um, Obviously, we are dealing with elderly people, we're dealing with our assets, and we have to be assured and certain that we're not doing anything to violate their rights or indeed their entitlements, and that's the key of this. And, you know, uh, legislation made in haste is usually bad bad legislation. Um, The nursing home amendment uh, bill only passed last last July. Dara Bryan is an enthusiastic minister and, you know, has the bit between his teeth in terms of the housing crisis and sees this as a, as a key plank in addressing the housing crisis. And I'm, yes, but I'm his original forecast, in the timetable section of Housing for All, this yes. was going to kick in at the end of the year. Now it appears it's going to happen sooner. So what's changed? No, he's, uh, I think that was, they were hoping that toward, towards the end of last year, there was the initial hope that it could, could, could happen. Obviously, we have the crisis in Ukraine, which has put a, a, an additional focus on the housing crisis, and we're extremely conscious that we have our own naturally occurring housing crisis here. So uh, everything and anything 
is being done to alleviate the housing crisis here in Ireland. And this is one of the key 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 planks of it. And uh, of all departments and all ministers, nobody has shied away from the challenge of addressing the housing crisis. And uh, before I come on, I checked, and I know that there is in, in, in intense meetings underway uh, this morning between the Department of Health and the Department of Housing to try and uh, act, act, activate this 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 change that we need. So when can we expect the change? I'd be hope, hoping as soon as possible. You know, you've given the figures there yourself. I think in order by Easter, we'd probably have 32,000 uh, Ukrainians in the country. They're they're all going to need to be housed. Many of them are being housed in temporary situations. Obviously, we've uh, possibly hope it's going to be a busy tourism season. It's not it's not ideal uh, to leave people in, in 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 hotels. It's very much an interim measure. It's not an ideal solution for families. And I know that the departments are looking at everything from modular housing engaging with indeed several modular housing companies right across the Midlands looking at solutions. So everything and anything has is, is been look, looked at and, and will be looked at. And uh, the, the one thing as a society and as a country when it comes to dealing with crisis in the past, we've proven ourselves very innovative. And this will certainly be the case in, in relation to the homeless crisis and also accommodating our Ukrainian visitors. Just I hear the bell and I know you're being called, but a listener wants to know because they've offered a vacant house that is in the possession of somebody who's in a nursing home for the purpose of Ukraine, there'll be no financial return. Are they allowed to do that under the fair deal scheme, even as it stands? That will be clarified through the through the Red Cross. I'm sure the Red Cross have been in touch with them and uh, they, they will arrange an inspection of the property and that, that will be teased out. But you, you would imagine if there's an undertaking that there is no rental income, that that shouldn't be an issue. All right, Joe Flaherty, appreciate your time and thank you for taking the call. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. He's a Fianna Fáil TD in Longford, Westmeath. Joe Flaherty. Before I head for the hills, if you are a lover of Cayley music, apart from Tradfest, which is getting underway in Tullamore at the weekend, there is also a Cayley organised by the Gishel Ukraine Committee and it's taking place 8 o'clock St Mary's Hall in Gishel this Friday evening. And the organiser, Alan, is encouraging you to please get involved, lend your support, listen, dance, generally have a fantastic night, but please contribute funds if you can, which will go towards accommodating three families from Ukraine in the local area. And if there's something happening similar to that in your own village, your own town, your own community, do let us know and we'll tell the Midlands on 0818 300 103. Enjoy the rest of your Wednesday. Lorraine will be keeping you company on the afternoon show today. I'll chat to you tomorrow morning from nine. Bye-bye.